Chapter 11, Part 2 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1, by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11, Part 2 The Battle Cry of Freedom. The Battle of Bull Run was fought on Sunday, July 21st, 1861. Clara Barton witnessed the preparations for it and saw its results. The boys marched so bravely, so confidently, and they came back in terror, leaving 481 killed, 1,011 wounded, and 1,460 missing. The next night she began a letter to her father, but stopped at the end of the first page and waited until near the end of the week before resuming. Unfortunately, the latter part of this letter is lost. She undertook to give somewhat in detail a description of the battle and what she saw before it and after. That part of the letter which has been preserved is as follows. Washington, D.C., July twenty-second, 1861. Monday evening, 6 o'clock p.m. My dear father, it becomes my painful duty to write you of the disaster of yesterday. Our army has been unfortunate. That the results amount to a defeat, we are not willing to admit, but we have been severely repulsed, and our troops returned in part to their former quarters in and around the city. This has been a hard day to witness, sad, painful, and mortifying. But whether in the aggregate it shall sum up a defeat or a victory depends, in my poor judgment, entirely upon circumstances, viz. the tone and spirit in which it leaves our men. If sad and disheartened, we are defeated, the worst and sorest of defeats. If roused to madness and revenge, it will yet prove victory. But no mortal could look in upon this scene tonight and judge of effects. How gladly would I close my eyes to it if I could. I am not fit to write you now. I shall do you more harm than good. July 26th, Friday noon. You will think it strange that I commenced so timely a letter to you and stopped so suddenly, but I did so upon more mature reflection. You could not fail to know all that I could have told you so soon as I could have got letters through to you, and everything was so unreliable, vague, uncertain, and I confidently hoped exaggerated, that I deemed it the part of prudence to wait. And even now, after all this interval of time, I cannot tell you with certainty and accuracy the things I would like to. It is certain that we have at length had the forward movement which has been so loudly clamored for, and I am a living witness of a corresponding backward one. I know that our troops continue to go over into Virginia from Wednesday until Saturday, noble, gallant, handsome fellows, armed to the teeth, a 
apparently lacking nothing. Waving banners and plumes and bristling bayonets, gallant steeds and stately riders, the roll of the drum and the notes of the bugle, the farewell shout and martial tread of armed men filled our streets and saluted our ears through all those days. These were all noble sights, but to me never pleasant. Where I fain would I have given them a smile and cheer, the bitter tears would come. For well I knew that, though the proudest of victories perch upon our banner, many a brave boy marched down to die, that reach it when, and as they would, the valley of Manassas was the valley of death. Friday brought the particulars of Thursday's encounter. We deplored it, but hoped for more care and shrewder judgment next time. Saturday brought rumors of intended battle and most conflicting accounts of the enemy's strength. The evening and Sunday morning papers told us reliably that he had 80,000 men and constantly reinforced. My blood ran cold as I read it lest our army be deceived. But then they knew it. The news came from them. Surely they would never have the madness to attack from open field, an enemy of three times their number behind entrenchments fortified by batteries, and masked at that. No, this could not be. Then we breathed freer and thought of all the humane consideration and wisdom of our time-honored brave commanding general that he had never needlessly sacrificed a man clara barton went immediately to the washington hospitals to render assistance after the battle of bull run but it did not require all the women in washington to minister to a thousand wounded men those of the wounded who got to washington were fairly well cared for but two things appalled her the stories she heard of suffering on the part of the wounded before they could be conveyed to the hospitals and the almost total lack of facilities for the care of the wounded she thought of the good clean cloth in new england homes that might be used for bandages of the fruits and jellies in northern farm homes which the soldiers would enjoy she began advertising in the worcester spy for provisions for the wounded she had immediate responses and soon had established a distributing agency i am very glad to have first-hand testimony as to the establishment which she now set up Mrs. Vassal, who, as Miss Frances Maria Childs, had been her assistant teacher in Bordentown, she described the home of Clara Barton during the Civil War. She said, The rooms she took were in a business block. It was not an ideal place for a home-loving woman. Originally, there had been one large room, but she had a wooden partition put through, and she made it convenient and serviceable. She occupied one room and had her stores in the other. 
It was a kind of tent life, but she was happy in it and made it a center from which she brought cheer to others. Before the end of 1861, the Worcester woman had begun to inquire whether there was any further need of their sending supplies to her. They had sent so much, they thought the whole army was provided for, and for the period of the war. We have her letter in reply. Washington, D.C. December 16, 1861. Mrs. Miller, Secretary, Ladies' Relief Committee, Worcester, Mass. Dear Madam, Your letter, mailed to me on the 11th, came duly to hand at a moment when I was more than busy, and, as I had just written Mrs. Dickinson, of whom I received the articles, a detailed account of their history and final destination, I have ventured with much regret to allow your letter to remain unanswered for a day, that I might find time to write you at greater length. You must before this have learned from my letter to Mrs. D. the occasion of the delay, viz. uncertain orders, rainy weather, and Maryland roads, and decided with me that the anxious package has long before this accomplished its mission of charity and love. The bundles were all packed together in a stout box, securely nailed, and given to the sutler of the 15th Regiment, who promised to deliver them safely at headquarters. I have no doubt, but it has all been properly done. A box for the 25th I had delivered to Captain Atwood's company, and heard with much satisfaction the gratification it afforded the various recipients. The men were looking splendidly, and I need not tell you that the 25th is a live regiment from its colonel and chaplain down. Worcester County has just cause for pride. I come now to the expressions in your excellent letter which I had all along feared. Are our labors needed? Are we doing any good? Shall we work? or shall we forbear? From the first I have dreaded lest a sense of vague uncertainty in regard to matters here should discourage the efforts of our patriotic ladies at home. It was this fear, and only this, which even gave me courage to assemble the worthy ladies of your committee, so vastly my superiors, to confer upon a matter with which they seemed perfectly familiar, while I knew so little. It is said, upon proper authority, that our army is supplied. Well, this may be so, it is not for me to gainsay, and so far as our New England troops are concerned, it may be that in these days of quiet idleness they have really no pressing wants, but in the event of a battle, who can tell what their necessities might grow to in a single day? They would want them faster than you could make. But only a small portion of our army, comparatively speaking, are New England troops. New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, 
Indiana, and Missouri have sent their hundreds of thousands, and I greatly fear that those states lack somewhat the active, industrious, intelligent organizations at home which are so characteristic of our New England circles. I think I discern traces of this in the camp. I feel, while passing through them, that they could be better supplied without danger of enervation from luxuries. Still, it is said that our army is supplied. It is said also, upon the same authority, that we need no nurses, either male or female, and none are admitted. I wished an hour ago that you had been with me. In compliance with a request of my sister in this city, I went to her house and found there was a young Englishman, a brother of one of their domestics, who had enlisted during the summer in a regiment of Pennsylvania cavalry. They are stationed at Camp Pierpont. The sister heard that her brother was sick, and with the energetic habit of a true Englishwoman crossed the country on foot nine miles out to his camp and back the same day, found him in an almost dying condition and begged that he be sent to her. He was taken shortly after in an ambulance, and upon his arrival his condition was found to be most deplorable. He had been attacked with ordinary fever six weeks before, and had lain unmoved until the flesh upon all parts of the body which rested hard upon whatever was under him had decayed, grown perfectly black, and was falling out. His heels had assumed the same appearance. His stockings had never been removed during all his illness, and his toes were matted and grown together, and are now dropping off at the joint. The cavities in his back are absolutely frightful. When intelligent medical attendance was summoned from the city, the verdict rendered upon examination was that his extremities were perishing for want of nourishment. He had been neglected until he was literally starving. Too little nourishment had been taken into the system during his illness to preserve life in the extremities. This conclusion seems all the more reliable from the famished appearance which he presents. I am accustomed to see people hungry when recovering from a fever, but I find that hunger and starvation are two distinct conditions. He can lie only on his face, with his insteps propped up with hair pillows, to prevent his toes from touching the bed, for with the life engendered by food and care, sensation is returning to them, and asks only for something to eat. Food is placed by him at night, and with the earliest dawn of day commence his bowls of broths and soups and a little meat, and he eats and begs for more, and sleeps and eats and begs. Three of his toes are to be amputated today. The surgeon of the regiment comes to see him, but had no idea of his condition. Said that their assistant surgeon was killed 
and that it was true that the men had not received proper care, he was very sorry. With the attention which this young man is now receiving, he will probably recover, but had it been otherwise? Only thus, that not far from this time, the city papers under caption of Death of Soldiers would have contained the paragraph, Benjamin, or Barry, Pollard, Private, Camp Pierpont. And this would have been the end. Whoever could have mistrusted that this soldier had starved to death through lack of proper attendance? Ah, me! All of our poor boys have not a sister within nine miles of them. And still it is said, upon authority, we have no need of nurses, and our army is supplied. How this can be so, I fail to see. Still again, it is not for me to gainsay. We are loyal, and our authority must be spected, though our men perish. I only mention such facts as come under my own observation, and only a fraction of those. This is not by any means in accordance with our home style of judging. If we New England people saw men lying in camp uncared for until their toes rotted from their feet, with not persons enough about them to take care of them, we should think they needed more nurses. If with plenty of persons about who failed to care for them, we should think they need better. I can only repeat that I fail to see clear. I greatly fear that the few privileged, elegantly dressed ladies who ride over and sit in their carriages to witness splendid services and inspect the Army of the Potomac and come away delighted learn very little of what lies there under canvas. Since receiving your letter, I have taken occasion to converse with a number of the most intelligent and competent ladies who are or have been connected with the hospitals in this city, and all agree upon one point, viz., that our army cannot afford that our ladies lay down their needles and fold their hands. If their contributions are not needed just today, they may be tomorrow, and somewhere they are needed today. And again, all agree in advising that whatever be sent be gotten as nearly direct as possible from the hands of the donors to the very spot for which it is designed, not to pass through to general distribution, strengthening their advice by many reasons and circumstances which I do not feel at liberty to lay before you. No one can fail to perceive that a house of general receipts and distribution of stores of all descriptions from the whole United States must be a mammoth concern, abounding in confusion which always involves loss and destruction of property. I am confident that this idea cannot be incorrect, and therefore I will not hesitate to advance it upon my own responsibility viz. that every state should have, in the vicinity of her greatest body of troops, 
a depot of her own where all her contributions should be sent and dispersed. If her own soldiers need it all, to them. If not, then let her share generously and intelligently with those who do need. But know what she has and what she gives. We shall never have any other precise method of discovering the real wants of our soldiers. When the storehouse of any state should be found empty, it would be safe to conclude that her troops are in need. Then let the full garners render the required assistance. This would systematize the whole matter and do away with all necessary confusion, doubt, and uncertainty. It would preclude all possibility of loss, as it would be the business of each house to look to its own property. There is some truth in the old maxim that what is everybody's business is nobody's business. I believe that as long ago as the early settlement of our country, it was found that the plan, general labor, general storehouse, and general distribution proved ineffective and reduced our own little colony to a state of confusion and almost ruin. There were one hundred persons then, one hundred thousand now. If, pecuniarily, I were able, Massachusetts should have her depot in this city, and I should have no fear of unreliability. This, to me, would be no experiment, for however dimly and slowly I discern other points, this has been clear to me from the first, strengthened by eight months' daily observation. While I write, another idea occurs to me. Has it been thought of to provide each of our regiments that are to accompany the next expedition with some strong, well-filled boxes of useful articles and stores, which are not to be opened until some battle or other strong necessity renders supplies necessary. These necessities are sure to follow, and, unless anticipated and guarded against, no activity on the part of friends at home can prevent the suffering which their absence will create. With regard to our 23rd, 25th, and 27th regiments, I cannot speak, but our 21st, I know, have no such provisions, and will not have unless thought of at home, and the consequence of neglect will be that by and by our very hearts will be wrung by accounts of our best officers and dearest friends having their limbs amputated by the light of two inches of tallow candle in the midst of a battle, and pitchy darkness closed down upon men bleeding to death, or since essaying to staunch their wounds with husks and straw. A note just now informs me that our four companies of surgeons from Fort Independence, now stationed at the arsenal in this city, some two miles from me, in waiting for their supplies from Boston, were compelled to sleep in low, damp places with a single blanket 
and are taking severe colds and coughing fearfully. My ingenuity points no way of relief but to buy sacking, run up many ticks to be filled with hay to raise them from the drafts a little, and to this the remainder of my day must be devoted. They are far more exposed than they would be on the ground under a good tent. I almost envy you, ladies, where so many of you can work together and accomplish so much, while my poor labors are so single-handed. The future often looks dark to me, and it seems sometimes that the smiles of heaven are almost withdrawn from our poor, rent, and distracted country. And yet there is everything to be grateful for and by no means the least is this strangely mild winter. But I must desist and crave pardon for my perhaps unpardonably long letter, for if you have followed me thus far, and especially at comparatively as rapid a rate as I have written, you must be weary. I did not intend to say so much, but let my interest be my apology and with one more final word in answer to your rational question i have done ladies remember that the call for your organized efforts in behalf of our army was not from any commission or committee but from abraham lincoln and simon cameron and when they no longer need your labors they will tell you but all this preliminary work bore in upon the mind of Clara Barton two important truths. The first was a necessity for organization. People were ready to give if they knew where to give and how their gifts would be made effective. The problem was one of publicity and then of effective organization for distribution. But the other matter troubled her yet more supplies distributed from washington and relief given to men there reached the wounded many hours or even days after the beginning of their needs what was required was not simply good nurses and hospitals and adequate food and medicine for the soldiers who were conveyed thither but some sort of provision on the battlefield itself in later years she described her own misgivings as she considered the kind of service that ought to be rendered and of the difficulties including those of social duties which might stand in the way i was strong and thought i might go to the rescue of the men who fell the first regiment of troops the old sixth massachusetts that fought its way through baltimore brought my playmates and neighbors the partakers of my childhood the brigades of new jersey brought scores of my brave boys the same solid phalanx and the strongest legions from old herkimer brought the associates of my seminary days they formed and crowded around me what could i do but go with them or work for them in my country the patriot blood of my father was warm in my veins the country which he had fought for i might at least work for and i had offered my service to the government 
in the capacity of a double clerkship at twice $1,600 a year, upon discharge of two disloyal clerks from its employ, the salary never to be given to me, but to be turned back into the United States Treasury, then poor to beggary, with no currency, no credit. But there was no law for this, and it could not be done and I would not draw salary from our government in such peril. So I resigned and went into direct service of the sick and wounded troops wherever found. But I struggled long and hard with my sense of propriety, with the appalling fact that I was only a woman whispering in one ear and thundering in the other the groans of suffering men dying like dogs unfed and unsheltered, for the life of every institution which had protected and educated me. I said that I struggled with my sense of propriety, and I say it with humiliation and shame. I am ashamed that I thought of such a thing. The thing that became increasingly plain to Clara Barton was that every hour that elapsed after a man was wounded before relief reached him was an hour on which might easily hang the issues of life and death. Somehow she must get relief to men on the battlefield itself. In later years, people used sometimes to address her in terms which implied that she had nursed with her own hands more soldiers than any other American woman who labored in military hospitals, that her hands had bound up more wounds than those of other nurses and sanitary leaders. She always tried to make it plain that she put forth no such claim for herself. Her distinctive contribution to the problem was one of organization and distribution, and especially of the prompt conveyance of relief to the places of greatest need and of greatest danger. In this, she was soon to organize a system, and indeed had already effected the beginning of an organization which was to constitute her distinctive work in the Civil War and to lay the foundation for her great contribution to humanity, the American Red Cross. End of chapter 11, part 2.